famously, I always say it took, my, it took me 10 years to write the first book because I was doing it in and around my corporate job. And the second book took uh, 10 weeks because I, and that's 10 weeks of sitting down and writing the start to the end. Brilliant to have you on the podcast. Uh, I've known you for a few years and I'm really excited to share your story and get your insights into this this thing called confidence. Um, and I guess that's the first question that we start with with our guests. What does confidence mean to you? Um, I think for me, it's knowing you've got it, as in you've got this, no matter what you're up against. So I don't think it's like knowing that you can do it or knowing that you can do it easily or whatever situation you find yourself in you know that you've got it in you, something in you to get you through it. Even if it's not easy, it's just knowing that it's there. All right, that's interesting. Where's that, what, what do you mean by knowing? Because I think that's a really interesting. Where's that come from? Well, it's a sense of, I think a lot of it comes from experience over time of doing, like public speaking is terrifying, I think for pretty much 99% of the population. You're pretty good at it. I'm okay if I practice. When I started out, when I was doing that public speaking, I was probably up there heart like a bunny rabbit going mental inside and there's a real kind of like panic but once you do it once do it again that knowing that muscle memory of i can do this this reaction i'm having in my body is a natural reaction mm. the confidence is a sense of i think it's maybe it is a bit of muscle memory psychological memory it's something in you that goes you've got this i can give you another example is that when i start to write a book I am absolutely terrified that that first chapter, I'm going to go, I can't do this anymore. I don't know how to do this. How did I write the last one? It's terrifying. And I'll sit there and go, I've done it. I've done it 12 times now. So I've got this. That to me is the confidence that I can write a book, but it doesn't take away the terror. <laughs> Interesting. So if you were to cast your mind back to the first book you wrote, where you didn't have that to call back to, how would you describe confidence then or how did you approach it in terms of the writing or just generally the writing i guess you know you don't have something to look back on to say well i've done this i can do it oh it's a good question um well i've always written ever since i was a little kid i've always written little stories i won a, a caption an adult caption competition as a kid um as a 12 year old horace and doris so I've always been able to write stuff. I've always had it in my head that I can, you know, people would make comment about, well, that's really good. You write really well. So I think that that repetition of message, whatever I was putting out, whatever I was creating as a kid, you know, you're creative, you're really good with words. Um, you've really described that well. I think that sort of layers down and sort of builds a very, at that point, a very shallow foundation, but it's enough for me to think I can do this. And I don't think I ever really got the confidence in the story until I had it first sort of looked at by um, uh, an editor of, of some of some nature, someone with a bit of a professional kind of experience to look at it and go, you've got the bones of a really good story here. There's a massive flaw in it because I've written it around American law. So I had to basically rewrite the second half of the book, which was terrifying. Um, but once I'd got that, past that stage then the confidence starts to flow a little more which then gets completely destroyed when you try and get an agent and try and get published because everyone nobody replies to you or tells it's rubbish and it's not suitable 
So, you know, you kind of get highs and then they're massive lows. So um, it's an ongoing process, I think, with confidence. Mm. Do, do you think it's it's vital in that case to, to, to have other people around you? So, so setting off as an author or in any new career, and, and I think we've all had many career changes uh, through our lives so far, it's vital to have somebody around to say, no, no, do you think you can do this? Yeah, I think I can do so well go for it or do you or do you think that a lot comes from inside i think it depends on the individual i mean i've always been really determined i think i've been driven by my demons as much as anything else to prove something you know i was bullied as a kid i didn't have a great relationship with my dad when i was really young i wasn't a playful family you know there was a lot of kind of you know quite frightening dark times you know i said dark there was no there was, there was no abuse there was no that sort of stuff but it was just it wasn't i grew up in an irish traditional irish household you know there wasn't a lot of fun um, so I've always kind of, I don't know, I went into my own head to create stories, to create spaces, to create, you know, I would, I would replay conversations that I'd had again, where I get the upper hand or I say it better, or I say it differently. And um, so I think for me, there's always been that inner drive to prove something to, to other people. It's why in my very weird and wonderful background, I ended up broadcasting and becoming a presenter because I wanted to do something that I thought was really um, you know, hard to do when most people couldn't do. And when I actually got in front of the mic and, you know, did it on and off, I never had a full-time gig. I sort of stood in for stuff or did short bursts. Once I'd got to that point, I didn't really have any interest in being a broadcaster anymore because it didn't, almost that, that, that flame had been put out, and, but the flame was still burning for something else. So I think, yes, it certainly helps having people in your, in your corner because my wife has been absolutely amazing my entire sort of journey from, you know, I started writing this book um, with her, not with her, but I was with her. 2008, I started writing my first ever proper book. Um, and, uh, you know, to this day, she's still my biggest cheerleader. Always, always, you can do it. You can do it. You, you've got it. And, you know, your, your books are, uh, are, are genuinely great stories. And she's also my biggest critic. If she sees something that's not right, she'll step in. So I think it's a mixture of self-drive. But if you've got great people, it makes it a lot easier. I love that that self determination. That I can really like resonate with that. Where you, you, you're not just proving yourself, right? You're proving other people not wrong, but you're overcoming things from from your childhood as well. I think you know we we do hold on to you know some negative um, some some thoughts and experiences then to really overcome that later in in life. Yeah, mm. that's an interesting thing because. You said driven by your demons a bit, which is kind of this, the, these experiences. And it's interesting, that can be a, a real positive and, or a negative. Mm. But is it about learning how to harness that drive for the right thing? Because you, you obviously said about broadcasting, it, you did it and it wasn't the thing. Yeah. D does do those demons still have a factor in the determination you have now in your writing now? You know, in terms of what getting something written down, getting it done, pushing yourself through the. I don't know the the up, the downs as well as the ups, you know. Yeah, I think I think a bit of it is, is is muscle memory. So I've, you know, like I recommend to most people with with anyone who's got challenges and stuff that keeps coming up. You know, I, when I went, I moved to Australia for four years, and when I was there, I went to see, I went to the therapy, you know, for the first time. And people, I remember my first my first New Year's Eve ever in 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 Sydney. We we're in this massive tower block, and a friend of mine turned around to me. She was British, and she said, "What are you running away from there?" I went, what do you mean what you're running away from? I'm not running away from anything. She went, 
palms in over here, all right, they're running, they're running away from something or running to something, and I was like, I'm not running away from anything. Six months later, I'm sitting there, like, just broken because all the safety nets around me, all my friend base, you know, everything that I knew and was and was familiar wasn't there. Obviously, Kim was there, my, my now wife, but we hadn't been together that long. So the demon, you know, it was like, I, I, I was like, I started to, the stuff that was in me started to come out. So I went and I saw an amazing therapist called Scott, uh, in Australia, um, he's an Arsenal fan. He's an Aussie. We used to talk a lot about football, and um, and I did a lot of work on that, and it really helped me understand where my experiences when I was younger had, had or how they they affected me. And I did learn to harness them, you know, a little bit. And I'd done work before that when I was in the UK and working in radio. Uh, I did some work with a, a, a now defunct company called Top Banana when I was in my early twenties, and it was one of these where you go away for four days and you swing from the trees and do you know all kinds of amazing, scary things with your workmates. But it was really open, open to the fire walking and all sorts. And um, I was suffering from depression at the time when I went, and I kind of we did a fire walk. I was talking to someone about this last week actually, and they said you know throw whatever you want to get rid of into the fire and then walk across <laughs> it and get rid of it. And it was pitch black by the time this fire went. And I went across. I put my depression in. I went across. And I was so pumped that when I got out the other side, I just ran off into this field. <laughs> and I was screaming. Like, you know, there were all these big yellow rugby tops off. And Mel, who was set up, she still laughs down. But I'm running around like this, just screaming because it's like I've beaten the depression. You know, and it took three of these lads to just tackle me to the ground. It was like, it was like I was running down the, like the line with the ball and there was like the pack was coming after it. And they got me and I'm like, you're all right. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm reading it. I'm reading it, and and that was the start of that. Getting away from that, you know, or finally taking a step forward, and that was a that was my first intro into you can change things. You don't have to live with what you've been dragging around with you. But there was a lot of shit I was dragging, so that's why I probably that would be '99. I think we did that. So t so nine years later, I started therapy in Australia proper, and that was a. Actually, from there, probably a 10-year journey and yeah. doing group, all kinds of stuff. And it was just been an amazing experience to learn about myself and then to learn to harness the drive. I don't think the drive ever really goes away. Maybe it will when I'm, you know, if I'm going to make my first million and I've got the yacht and I'm sat there, you know, will I be like, yeah, it's all good now? You know, or is it just, well, what can I do now? Now I've reached this level. What's the next level? Yeah. I don't know. We, we were talking about this before. I think it's that initial realization because i had some therapy um my mum and dad uh divorced when i was 10 and i had some like which i didn't realize some some real major hang-ups i had a very close relationship with my dad for like the, the latter part of his life but a lot of time where i didn't see him you know i'd moved away with another job and everything so when i had to be a therapy and it was probably the best thing that i ever did uh, and remember she, she was fantastic basically gate said hard as nails didn't ask too many questions. She get it. And remember, I saying to us, um, "So, have you got any addictions?" I was like, "No, no, I'm, no, I mean, I, I said, you know, I like, I like a drink and stuff like that." So, what about tattoos? I was like, well, "Okay." She says, "How much of your body's covered?" I said, "Well, pretty much all of us." She's like, and it, "Just it, little things like that that just sparked a certain realization <clears throat> that was just really going back to my my childhood and yeah. and and then I kind of realized why I'd probably been." heavily tattooed it was just yeah it's i i i've heard that about you know tattooing in fact i think it was the um one of dan dan brown's books there's a guy one yeah. of the characters tattoos up yeah he goes through the whole ritual yeah. changing and it's almost like the butterfly the metamorphosis yeah. from the bug into the butterfly and changing who you are mm -hmm. 
and that you know that kind of that's struck me i was just like god i never thought about that yeah makes sense so just to that that journey of the the sort of of the self can you put it in context of the journey you went through with in the profession because i think there was obviously some key stages there that led to you becoming a writer um what was that journey professionally through that um well Bizarrely, I trained. I trained, uh, you know, my, in the late nineties, as or graduated as a, um, a graphic designer, and um, it was. I think it, it was one of the the, the uh, recessions. I can't remember which one it was. One of the, the pink Tory recessions, and you know, we were all coming out bright and bushy tailed and couldn't really get work. And I ended up doing a um, doing a job in 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 Yorkshire in house for a, a company that <laughs> still makes people laugh now. And I always get J.R. Hartley. They used to. Create, they used to manufacture and sell fly fishing equipment. <laughs> I got one of the best design schools in there. I was in Newcastle, right, and Northumbria. And at the time, it was Central St. Martins, Northumbria, and uh, and Glasgow, I think, were like considered the top three. There's probably people now screaming at me going, yeah, they weren't. <laughs> but they were, in my mind at the time. That's my memory of it. And so I'd gone to one of the best schools, and all of a sudden I'm in this horrible little office in a in a terrace house in, in a small village outside uh, Rotherham. And I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And then I heard this ad on the radio, and it was around Diana Dyke, because I remember listening, I listened to Radio 1, and I moved over to what at the time was Kiss Radio, and they were looking for copywriters, someone to write uh, radio commercials. It just sounded like everything I wasn't doing, and I thought, give it a go. And I applied for the job, got it, and my and to this day, it always makes me laugh, my boss at the time, when I got the job, turned around and said, the reason you didn't get the job, you, the reason you got the job, was like, yeah, he goes, you weren't a wanker. I went, what? He goes, we interviewed so many wankers who came in like, what are we DJs? And it's just need to write commercials. Yeah. But they were fun and it was a great time. So I did that and I did that really well. Actually, I just, again, it was the writing really sort of struck me and, and, and I thought I could do it really, really, I wouldn't say easily, but it came, it came easily to me in terms of, you know, the ideas and then we'd horn it and stuff. Did a bit of on air stuff as a, you know, radio presenting, being a DJ for want of a better phrase. Then worked in my way into radio management because I thought there's a ceiling in the radio ads, but actually I'd really like to see if I can, you know, get higher up in the programming side because all the programmers seem to have all the fun jobs and they got more money and gigs and all this kind of stuff. So I eventually got myself into management, which then um, brought me to the Northeast, then over to Australia for um, uh, for four years. And then when I came back, um, and the four years in Australia was amazing, but it was really hard work. It wasn't like flip flops and sandals and you know, kind of chilling out. It was really oh, like we were. It's Australia off. Yeah, yeah. so they, you know, well, you can go to you can go, you can go north or you can go yeah. can go west. But if you're in Sydney and Melbourne, it's pretty hardcore, full on. You know, it's a, it's a big business over there. Lots of money in it. And so I did that, and um, I eventually came back to the UK. When me and Kim came back for family reasons. Felt like it was the right time as well, and I'd got a job working in Sheffield. Um, running one station, Hallam FM, and then that turned into three stations across Yorkshire, Leeds and Hull. And then a, 14 months later, I was promoted to group content director, which at the time was about, if you take into account um, digital and FM stations, was probably, I don't know, about 34 stations. Then we bought more stations. And in the end, by the time I left, I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think if you count, you count the FMs and the digitals, 50-odd radio stations and... 250 people working under my responsibility, some freelance, some staff, and a budget of about 10 million pounds a year. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the the pinnacle of my um, 
corporate success, if you like. Um, but by the time I got there, it was I'd, I'd kind of had enough. Did you? I, I mean, I'd, I'd worked uh, corporate size <clears throat> in my last job as, as a sales director before I, I said this open. Like it, it just, you know, I was at that get, get to the point where we, the usual work of ridiculous hours, the hierarchy, everything that comes with it, and the, the burnout, you know, and just that that was and quite a, a low point and then I'd lost my dad and made the decision to set this business up. So like I think sometimes there's gotta be certain trigger points throughout what sounds like your career as well, where you've gone, Yeah, okay, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Very much, very much. The move back from Australia was inspired by my brother was my brother and his wife were having their first um uh, baby. A lot of my pals were having kids and we felt like we were missing out on that. Plus our parents, my parents in particular, were getting a bit older. When I eventually got to the point um, where I asked for redundancy from corporate, my my son was born in the November of 2017, and that was a real, I mean, a massive life-changing experience for all the all the reasons everybody knows about who's got kids, but also for me, someone who was on the road at quarter past six in the morning and not getting home till eight o'clock at night, I've got this lovely little bundle. All I've got his videos, his man sending me of him, like you know, gurgling away and having his nappy change, and I'm like, I'm missing all of this. Um, but at that point, he wasn't enough for me to go. I need to get out. But about six months later, my dad was really poorly and eventually did die. Um, not long after, um, we, we were given 12 months and it was probably only about four weeks after that. And um, I spent a lot of time in hospital over that four weeks and at one point in a in a, in a home with him, um, a respite home. And I was just like, I'm my dad worked away a lot when I was a kid. He worked in London five days a week for, for most of my childhood. So I didn't really have a great relationship with him until he, he came home and, and, and he couldn't speak to kids. He could speak to me as an adult. So we got on great as adults, but as kids, he's just no use at all. Um, which is, you know, he comes on his own upbringing. We could be here all, we could be here all day going through the, the, you know, the generations of what's brought, brought it through. But for me, I just looked at it and thought, I'm doing exactly the same thing. Vaughn, my son, is going to grow up with a, a dad he doesn't really know and you know, we might have nice flash holidays I can take him on four weeks of the year they're amazing but all he want, really wants is his dad there at the parents evening and, and you know and now I walk him to school every morning and you know I pick him up fair few nights and we, me and my wife split it up between us but that was the real thing when there was some changes came about uh, within the business around about I think it was April time of 2018 and my role was changing, and I looked at the at the way it was changing, and just thought, "There's an opportunity here. Rather than just go with this, is this the time I can just say? Because I knew the rules, I knew the law. I was like, can this is changing enough? Can I ask for this for not to carry on?'" And they were like, "Was that what you want?" I was like, I, I, "Well, I'd like to at least think about it." And a month later, I walked away, you know, because it just felt like it was terrifying, scariest thing I've ever done in my life, you know, and. Um, and sometimes in the last few years, I felt like the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. God, it's been days I've just sat there going, what the fuck did they do that for? But actually, you know, this morning walking Vaughan to school, giving him a cuddle, and then just walking back up the road, I'm like, it doesn't get any better, you know? Love it. So you've got that balance, you know, like you're not missing out on them memories, big key part of your, your children's life. Yeah, and he's growing up so fast. I mean, it's like I look at videos of him and I'm like, stop. Yeah. You know, I know parents say this, it's like, slow down slow down but he's just like boom 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 and yeah i just love it you know i'm there this morning i was doing some writing this morning i got really early 
Oh, well, not really. Yeah, it was probably early enough. I was at my desk at six because sometimes I start at like five. If I'm if I'm really busy, I'll be like get at the desk. But I got at six, and I hear him come down the stairs at ten to seven, and it's just he sits on my knee and we have a cuddle. He then sits in the chair I've got in my office, which is my dad's old chair. Sits on his iPad, and I'll do a bit more work. I'm not rushing out the door like with a piece of toast in my gob and you know like a cup of coffee. It's like see you later. It's like well, get him ready, and then we walk to school, and you know we were doing the rainbow. Uh, car look out this morning walking down let's see if we can find all the colours of the rainbow there's an argument about what colours are in the rainbow yeah, yeah. but you know he got them all he got all the all, all the primary colours he found you know so I just love that I can't I couldn't change that I think there's an interesting thing that probably resonates with a lot of blokes our age potentially where we've had a particular kind of dad who's come up through a certain era um, and my dad Irish um very much the quiet, you're saying out, you keep it to yourself, you don't share anything, you're the strong man, all of that kind of thing. Never had a relationship with him until I became an adult, ironically. Yeah. And, you know, me ended up passing away. We had a kind of relationship, but it was, it was just, we just didn't have it, you know? And I remember going for a walk with my son Thomas when he was like about seven, eight, and he was asking about me grand, the, the, his granddad, and I was kind of saying, well, we never really speak. He's down north at Wayne on it. And there was something where I think this is where it kind of makes you realise this is more than just a choice of a career or a status or whatever. He just said, I don't know how you do that, Dad, because you're my best friend. And I was like, do you know those moments? You know, we've had our ups and downs since, but we still have a good relationship. But it was that point where you just think, this this moment here is what it's about. And how many of us can get lost in this chasing of something because we feel as if we should? Or have to, or as a bloke, we have to provide all of these things that perhaps uh, lay off us from like you know previous generations. Um, it's such a it's such a big thing to to think about, isn't it? It was my dad was very much provide, provide, and you know when you think about his his childhood. My granddad worked in the UK as a postman, but I was broke in Dublin, and you know they lived, the house was so small that him and his brother had to live in had to had to sleep in the house opposite. Because we went, we went after he died, and my brother went back and and found the house, and we were talking about it. So, and and so his dad was here fifty weeks of the year, and he only saw his dad two weeks of the year. So he never, and, and when he came home, his dad went to mass every day, you know. So he had lived when we saw him. And what makes me laugh is, um, there's a year between my my dad his and his his two sisters and his brother, and it's literally every time my granddad came back, he had another <laughs> kid, you know. So and that was his upbringing. So for him, it was like. For me to for me to win at being a dad is to be a provider, and I can do this by going away because I can make more money away than I can in London than I can in Yorkshire. You know. So on that note, you said terrified. There's a big decision there, and in your heart, you probably know what's the right one, but you're still stepping away from something that's provide providing. What what was that journey like? Oh, it was. It was um, I remember that after having the meeting with my, my boss going outside ringing Kim and I was in Leeds, it was a really sunny day. I stood outside Yorkshire TV because the station was next to Yorkshire TV or I call it Yorkshire TV, ITV now. And I rang her and, and, and her dad was really poorly at the time. So we had a lot of stress in the family as well. And um, despite all that, when I, I was thinking, this is, this is the worst news I can give her, that I'm thinking about walking away and she just went, do it. And she was working for the same company at the time. She's just like, do it. You're really unhappy now. You know, you just, you know, you're missing Vaughan so much. It's time to, you know, you know, bet on yourself, really. 
So that was that was that was excitement. And then over that, I think I had two or three weeks of sort of I had about five days to decide exactly what I wanted to do before I had to give them an answer on whether I would take the new role within the business or whether I was going to take the redundancy. And I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And I remember the last the day before we did we before I had to give them a decision, we went went for a long walk with Vaughan in the pram and I just felt so sick. We got some we got some lunch. I couldn't eat any of it. You know, I was just like, God, I don't know what to do. And we sat down and went through the list of all the reasons to stay and all the reasons to go. And there were more reasons to go, but the reasons to stay were f- were the ones that the mortgage I had, you know, I have a big house which I'd got in corporate land and it was all lovely. You know, there's a big mortgage on it, you know. And at the time it was all great, but when you're taking that on without the safety net, it's like that's a lot of money to find every month and yeah. everything else that goes around in a house. And you know, it's like, well, what are we going to do? For money, I mean, it's you know, there's there was no real jobs outside of what I was outside of the company I was in. The kind of job, the level I'd got to, they were, they were all kind of taken, and they were sort of safe seats, if you like. There weren't places I could go. Well, they're gagging for me. I go over there, but if I did, I'd just be doing the same thing anyway. So it was like the book was sitting in the background, the first one, and uh, Media Monster. I was like, why don't I see if I can do that? You know, maybe this is a seminal moment in my life where. I'm given an opportunity, the door is opening, opportunity's knocking, and I'm just going to walk through it, write a book, and then before you know it, I'll be loaded, I'll be like, your next James Patterson, and this will all be for it, you know? That's the dream. And and so that was kind of, I, I, I made the decision, yes, I'm going to do it wholeheartedly with ab- abject fear pouring out of me. As I, I didn't even remember the meeting, because I had to, the next day, I had to tell them, I did the meeting till four, and I just walked around the block constantly through the day on the phone to people. I wasn't doing any work at that point because I knew where I was going. There was no point. I didn't have any meetings. My PA dad, who I was really close to, was knew what was going on. She's like, "Just I've cleared your diary. Just do what you need to do. It was really sunny. I just walked around Castlefield in Manchester, <laughs> ringing my sister, ringing my brother, you know, trying to get my ringing Kim, trying to get my head around the fact I wasn't going to bottle it and say, yes, I'll stick with the job. And in the end, it was like, you know, it's like, well, what are you going to do? And they were all expecting me to stay. I like my hand was shaking when I and my my throat, everything. I was like, no, I'm going. And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going. And you know, it was just I don't think I even really gave them the truth behind it. I think I just said, oh, you know, my dad's pulling, or my dad passing away. All that. I think I was just, you know, I just I wanted didn't want them to feel bad. I was like, don't feel bad that I'm leaving. I think it's you know, it's all for the. Right. It was like literally, I just need. I need to do this. I need to do it. But I didn't have the confidence to tell them that at the moment, funnily enough. It was just like, there was all the other reasons I was going rather than, I'm doing this because I really want to bet on myself. I want to go for this. And I really want to, again, it's that thing, I want to prove that I can do this. Yeah, I think there'll be a, a lot of guys in, in, in the same position where, you know, we, we've all got financial needs, but very unhappy in jobs and, and, and careers, whatever that is. And, and just won't make the changes. So, you know, I think about that and how much mental strain that must put on people to think, I'm just going to stick in the in the same job because I can't see a way out. And I think with many things, there always is ways out. You know, it's really, it's, it's, it's looking at other opportunities in the way you have taken some time, you know, what do I do here and, and, and taking the plunge. Yeah, it is. It's I I I, talk, I get I hear that a lot. You know, I still do some coaching outside of the of the book writing. And then there's, you know, I work with entrepreneurs who have kind of like a lot of people have had 
you know, I was talking to um, uh, my cleaner the other day. I didn't know her background. You know, she's just like, I just have a really high power job in HR. But I became a single parent. And I was like, I can't be doing that anymore. I'm going to do this. And she's got like this, just this empire that she's built of things that she does that she loves to do. And, um, you know, give her great satisfaction, but massive amounts of flexibility. And I think, you know, if you'd said to her probably two years in the HR job, when she's on, on good money and, and doing really well, she'd probably just be like, you know, no, I'm not, I can't do this. Or, you know, why would I do that? But actually, need sort of necessitates that change. And I, I, I do, I feel for people who are stuck and don't know how to, where to go, because I think that must be the most terrifying thing. At least you've got a germ of something that you can yeah. do. Yeah. That's got to be pretty exciting. I think the knock-on effect would be your relationships and not on yourself. You know, around your friends, your, your family and everything, when, you, when you're when stuck like that and you feel as though you've got nowhere to go, it must be horrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You you said something about there's been times when you thought it was a stupid decision in the past. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess they're, they're the tough time, you know, tough times of, in the choice you've made. But where do you think you'd be if it stayed? It's a good question. Think about this a little, you know, a little bit. It's kind of... So when I came back from Australia, because what I was doing over in there, it was you know it was very well thought of. I had a lot of skills, and I ended up getting a job in one of the in the in the Northern Network for the company I worked for. I often wonder if I'd gone to London to one of the stations, if the opportunity had arisen, I'd gone into London, would I have stayed, you know, um, and and sort of got locked into that whole London lifestyle? I don't know. I mean, if I'd stayed in the job I was doing, there's been the company's changed a lot in the last five years since I left. Or was it six years? I can't remember now. It must be five, I think. Um, and so there probably would have been opportunities that would have been suitable for me, and I probably would have quite enjoyed. But I think the most terrifying thing is in that period of getting there, I would have just been doing the the long journeys. Probably prior to COVID, before you know remote working became a thing, I was on the road constantly, you know. And even in the new role they were offering me, there was still a fair bit of travel in it. So I think where I would have been is probably just I would have got into a routine of uh, of, how, of of seeing Vaughan enough was enough. I probably would have convinced myself that's enough, and we've got yeah. nice we've got money for nice holidays and you know treats and all that kind of stuff. And I think that probably would have been. But I, I I guarantee that I'd still be writing the book in the background and probably be still trying to sell it to somebody because that was always the dream. And that was the dream before I went to Australia. You know, was to was to write. You know, sitting in Spain at my my wife's um, dad's apartment that he had out there, and just looking out at the sunshine, just God, it'd be ace just to write and be able to just because everyone has this vision of writers sitting on the balcony somewhere hot, just writing away or some log cabin, and that mine was a little different. I mean, I write in my office in Shotley Bridge, <laughs> you know, in my, in my office in the house, but you have this image of I can just go anywhere I want. I've got this incredible freedom, this incredible flexibility in life, and I think that's all I really want out of life is just freedom of choice, mm. you know. And and that would have always been in in the back of my mind. So I'd have been plugging away. Yeah. I don't think I don't think I could have. St- I don't know. You know, it's it's one of those things where there's I think there's a tipping point sometimes where you think, am I too old to move now? Am I too old? Is there too much at stake now? Because you know, Vaughn needs X Y Z for school and starting a business. Starting is the right going to work? Would that have kept me locked in? I'd have been frustrated. I know that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I'm just the. I'm really interested to understand how you stay disciplined enough to, to keep on writing. I know to 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 be able to sit down and go right. I've I'm, I finished that book and I'm on to the next one. Mm. 
and and that 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 in my opinion to looking at it that takes some discipline to to do that knowing that you've got to write that next book yeah how do you do that is it self-motivation again is it going back is it just knowing that this is just what i need to do there's a there's a few things i mean there's a there's a there's definitely a self-motivation there's a drive there's a you know um a need to because the more books you have the more the more books you sell and you know they read one, they read the next, they read the next thing, because mine are a series. You know, the reader of mine, I think, is about 75%, which I'm told is, is very high. Um, so you want to keep the list, you want to keep those key listeners. You want to keep the the readers, it's my, my old ears, that you want to keep the readers going for the next one. So I'm constantly looking to try and and, and create the next story. Um, and I get excited about them as well. Um, I worry that the readers will, you know, forget about me. I don't want them to, it's like, keep reading. But there's also a process. So when I wrote... And famously, I always say it took, my, it took me 10 years to write the first book because I was doing it in and around with my corporate job. And the second book took uh, 10 weeks because I, and that's 10 weeks of sitting down and writing the start to the end. But the um, when I first got together with my publishers, um, they said to me, how many books can you get out a year? And I was like, well, probably one. And they were like, we probably need more. And I was like, more books than that. I mean, it took me 10 years. And they were like, look, we're going to show you a method. And this is what people now call, um, uh, it's based on the writer's room and now the American TV sort of process where you get people in a room and you work on crafting a story as we would now to try and get all the holes out as quickly as possible. So when you sit down to write it, you've got like a a story, act one, act two, act three. So they showed me how to do that, and then I sort of developed it a little bit more myself, and then I got a little bit more detailed. And I now, when I sit down to write a book, I have every single chapter planned out. So I write the book in chapters, and then I write the book. So that probably takes about a month. I'm just at the end, or towards the end of planning um, the 11th in the series now, Deadly Inferno. And that's about a month to six weeks. It's been a bit longer this time, because obviously, um, you know, we had a, a, a recent bereavement, so... That has kind of knocked me a little bit off, off off my usual course, but even then, I've been giving myself a hard time for not, even in the most horrific of times, writing this bloody book and writing the next one. So I do, when I sit down, I'm really determined that um, once I start the book, and my goal is to try and get two chapters a day written, which is about two and a half thousand words in total, and, uh, and to try and get that done. If I do that, my I have about 50 chapters a book, I can do it in about five weeks. Has a work time like that more recently. It's been about seven or eight weeks. Then there's the read through off the back of it. Then it goes to uh, this development team. They'll have a look at it. They'll kick it back to me with a few changes. I'll tidy up. Then it goes into the editing process and comes back with anything that's kind of majorly problematic. But by then, with me through that many filters, it's generally it's not. So there's never any problems with it. A few little tweaks here and there. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, it's a combination of all of many things, but years of experience as well, I think. Just and and related to that as well, like where do you where do your ideas come from? <laughs> do you idea do, do you go to certain places? Do you see things? Do you read things? Where do the ideas come from? It's weird, it's like little conversations about things, driving things to jump into your head. A lot of the times, I mean I because mine are police procedurals and crime fiction, um, you know, they are, I can take inspiration from true crime. One of my books, Deadly Obsession, is actually, it's based on a character who is, for for, for many reasons, um, again, actually, 
horrific childhood, he is obsessed with emulating the UK's greatest serial killers. Um, he's got a point to prove that he's as good as those serial killers. And when you read the story, it makes sense as to why he wants to do that. So he emulates, and in this one I use, I, I chose a number of, um, I won't say who they are, too many of them. There's one in there, which is obviously Peter Sutcliffe, because I'm from Huddersfield and I grew up in the shadow of that while that was kind of kicking off. Um, what was rolling on, should I say, because it went on forever. Um, but there's a number of, of serial killers in there, and I had to research them. And, and that came from just, I'd always had that in my head, but I'll look at true crime stuff, and, and you'll see something, and you think, oh, God, that's an interesting thought. And obviously, I'm just not, not going to replicate an episode of 24 Hours in Police Custody, but there might be something in it where, um, if I, there was my last book was called Deadly Veil, uh, or it's called Deadly Veil. And the original idea for that was had come from me watching um, Inspector Morse, the younger version. Um, oh, escapes from now. Uh, Endeavour. Yeah. So I'm watching Endeavour, and there's a bit where they go into this house and there's some um, some uh, masks. This guy's a prosthetic, just prosthetic uh, teeth fixer or something like that. And there's these these masks on them on the wall, and I'm like, oh god, it'd be cool, or weird if like a guy wearing a mask of his previous victim killed someone and was called CCTV. So the previous victim kills the next victim. I thought, this is amazing. And I was like, so good. It wasn't, I couldn't make it work. I could not get the motivation for the, for the guy doing the first place. And that, that I remember that was, and it ended up being totally different, totally different. The veil sticks, and there's a reason for that when you read the book. But Jesus, I went, I went around the houses for about four weeks on that with my development director, talking to her backwards and forwards. And I said, about this? She said, like, mm-hmm. No, I don't think that works either. And sometimes you've just got to go, as much as I love the idea, I can't make it plausible that anybody on the planet would want to do that or why they would want to do it. And, you know, you can make it, you can make it any old story, but for me, it's got to have, it's got to be rooted in, there's a real life motivation and, and it kind of goes back to my own experiences. There's a thread that takes you to the starting point. That's interesting. You know, when you ask about the ideas thing and what you just said there, just kind of things. What's it like to be in your head when you're creating? Funny, <laughs> <laughs> my my wife's friends. Um, I remember one called to her. She said, "Well, I scores. I don't know if I should be in the same room on my own." And I'm like, "I'm not dangerous. I mean, like I'm researching the serial killers, but I'm not one." So you see my my Google search. It's incredible. <laughs> Seriously, I'm a text message. I've got a friend who does some some support work for me around law. She's a, a former Crown Prosecutor. And the stuff I send her going, if someone wants to do this, this and this, she's like, and she comes straight back. And we always laugh and say, God, if anybody reads these, you know, she's well, at least you've got the books you could point in the direction of, you know, rather than the garden that's been recently turned. <laughs> that's the woman. That's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That, that creativity with the discipline and and building that up over time and i think for for me it's do, do you do you sometimes get overwhelmed with the thought of i've written this many books and i and i and i know i want to carry it on and feeling like what if the ideas don't come or so, I, I don't know something like that do, do you ever get that all the time yeah i've got a little um i've got my, my phone and the notes I, I, i'll i'll call it an idea i'll just flick it down and um every now and again i'll get to the point where i'll go oh, i've got loads and i go oh no that's deadly obsession. That's deadly veil. That's that. Right? Oh God, I've written that one. I've written that one. So I'll start to feel like I'm running out. And there's always something that will jump into my head and go, oh, that could work. 
I'm at the with 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 the latest one, Inferno. It's there's a lot of there's a couple of threads that I've been running through the books that will hopefully sort of like come to a, a crescendo in this one, right. and um, that's quite scary, but I think necessary because I think there's got to we've got to do something to um, to keep it fresh and exciting and and kind of reintroduce or introduce um, you know some some new blood into the into the space. I won't say who it is, but um, it needs definitely i think needs it because otherwise you just end up with the same old same old same old and i think the greatest um you know stories and series they freshen things up mm. sometimes when you least expect it you're like wow i mean look game of thrones is a prime example yeah you know no spoilers but uh, you know if you've not seen it, don't don't spend too much time getting used to sean bean <laughs> shouldn't stop <laughs> right. That's right. you know you're just like oh okay right you know, so I'm quite with the guts to do that, but I certainly feel it needs to sort of freshen up. But you do definitely get to that space where you're like, and that's where the first chapter comes from, that whole thing of, can I make this one, the prose, as good as the last one? You know, terrifying. Which brings, you know, you talk about characters. You've got the DCI, Jane uh, Phillips, yeah. who um, I think that you've got the stories and, and the plots that are really, really gripping, but you've also got the characters that you see through. And, you know, I guess, background policing almost kind of visualizing that incident room and and the the characters in there and yeah. familiar you get familiar with them comfortable with them in in a good way um that to me is a big draw as well when you're reading sort of serials like that yeah it's that's there's a i, I have the feedback i get on the characters are is, is amazing the favorite one by far is bovolino who is like this enormous kind of big italian which is quite unusual for an italian you know but he's like he's a man mountain and the great irony is, is that the real Bovolino, the guy I based the name on, is a guy called Joe Bovolino, who looks like Mussolini and is about five foot tall in Australia. So I got this tiny little fella create this big, this big, you know, monster of a man. And the other week I was in this, in, in I was picking up Vaughn from school, and one of the mums came up to me because it started to filter through to the mums that oh, Vaughn's dad's an author, and they only read your books. And my wife's great, telling everyone, oh, you should try these. And um, one of the mums came up, and she just went, I almost text you the other night and I was like really because I thought you'd kill Bov off and if we kill Bov off and I was just like <laughs> and the many times on that particular book so many people said I thought you killed him I was going to kill you and they're so attached to him and I'm like that's amazing for me because I wrote a team that I'd want to be part of Jane is loosely based on my my I don't know my values and who I am as a person and when I if I was running a team how I'd like to run it with my close-knit team and I'm sure people in my career would say, well, what a bollocks, you're an arsehole. Fair enough, I probably was to you because you probably weren't very good. But those that I rated, you know, I really enjoyed working with. I would do anything I could to support them and to get the best for them. And she's like that. And I love that about her. And I love the rest of the team around her, that sort of balance. And and I think, you know, I just try to, um, I love the fact people get so invested in her and the team. And that space, and it keeps coming through. Even on the latest one, it's like I love these characters. It's like being with the back of the team, back with the old friends. I'm in the investigation with them, following them through. And as a non-copper, no, no, you know, I've got no background in the policing whatsoever. Um, that's a real compliment to me that I've managed to capture that. Mm. You know? Can I just have a uh, just a, a question uh, to know about characters? Um, paperback or Kindle? In terms of the best one to buy or to read, to read, what do you prefer? Or do I prefer? Yeah. Oh, good question. Um, I think paperback, which is, 
which is kind of counterintuitive because most of my readers find me on Kindle, um, particularly Kindle Unlimited is massively popular. Mm. Um, so, you know, they pay a small fee, they read whatever they like, and my books are in there. And uh, to be fair, the majority of my revenue comes from, uh, a large portion of my revenue comes from Kindle, very little from paperback. Um, but I guess because we're, you know, we sell solely through Amazon, maybe if it was, if, if we'd gone down the traditional route, that might be different. But for me, I love a paperback. Um, I'm not a fan of hardbacks with the covers yeah. that come off. They drive me insane. You know, it's just a, that's just a, you know, I'm quite lazy with that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think um, there's something about having it, holding it. And as a writer, when you, as an author, when you get your first cover and you look at it and you go, can't believe this, you know, it's not quite the same when you hold the Kindle up, you know, <laughs> yeah. but what would have put yourself this here? <laughs> um, I suppose Kindle's become the convenient, but I'm with you on the book. I love a hardback, but I am the same with the dust covers. Um, and I remember as a kid, kind of recalling the kid, I collected the Lord of the Rings series of all the books. And I remember, and I regret it, taking off the dust covers and ripping up and chucking them away. And it was one of those things where later on you realise what you've done. But um, the physical book and a good paperback, because you can kind of go yeah. back and for depending on the, whether it's fiction or fact, you can make a couple of notes in as well. So I don't like that. It took me years to read books. And once I got a Kindle, I, every night, I read it yeah. every single night yeah. now and on holidays. So for me, it's helped us mm. start to read. Yeah. Yeah. But I know there's, you know, I, I can completely understand from, from, from your side as, a, as an author. Um, but for me, it was just now, it's just like, it's like podcast, the amount I absorb every day or how much I read every day now. Mm. I'm very grateful for Kindle. <clears throat> Not really. They're, they're what they've done for for. You know, particularly indie indie authors. I know I'm not an indie author so much as those that you know self publish. But for the digital publishing world and those that you know, it, it has absolutely just changed the world completely. It's incredible. Yeah. Do you know you just sort of taking a step back and I ask that question about what where do you think you'd be? There's a phrase that kind of popped into my head of like the curse of OK. Mm. And and you've been talking about your books and it's been like your face is like we're lighting up with you. We're yeah. kind of in it with you. And excited versus I'd have been all right. I'd probably been chipping away. And I think this is a real challenge, isn't it, for for many of us who are feeling trapped and st stuck, just don't know whether they can or can't. And it's yeah. it's it, it might be okay. There's a grind and a psychological weight to it, but it's okay versus what could be. And it it's it's funny because you know there's the thing that I got really high in my career in radio. One of the job I had, I was running the content side of Europe's biggest radio network. I mean, that's a pretty big thing, commercial radio network. I think Radio 2 is probably bigger than anything you know you could get, or certainly the network, whether it was bigger than Radio 2. But it was a bloody great big job. And I'd never intended, and even when the job was advertised, the group content director, I remember saying to my boss at the time, no way they would do that, not a chance. And I was persuaded to, over time that you should do this. Then it kicks into, well, I need to prove I can do it. Why wouldn't I do that? You know, if they're going for it, then I should be going for it. I'm going to do it. And I managed to get to a super high level based on the fact I was determined and I wanted to get the best result I possibly could. I wouldn't say I really enjoyed the job. You know, it wasn't a passion. My passion was getting the best bloody result I possibly could to do that to my bosses. that were going, we need more money. We need more audience. We need X, Y, Z. All right, well, I'll fucking go and get them for you then, won't I? And I went out and built the team I possibly could. I wanted to do the best job, and I always have, whatever I do, I want to do the best job I can at it. 
I wouldn't say I got up every morning and went, can't wait to get into work. It's, this I kind of I get this completely because when I think back throughout my sales career, I was I was a um, process engineer up until twenty nine and promoted at twenty nine, moved into management, and I look and I moved up and up and up until I got the sales director. Would I say I really loved? I loved it in parts, you know, but I, I moved around different companies and everything. But I look, I, but I was just determined, and I knew what I wanted to do in my career at that level. And then when you peak, it's kind of like. Okay, I'm there now. Well, what do I do now? Yeah. You know, so like when you peak at, at that point and you're not loving something, you move to another company, okay, I might spend another year, that might spend two years, but you're not fulfilling the passion like you just said there before, you, your face lights up. It's like when I talk about fashioning clothes, that's, that's what I'm flipping. Yeah. Not selling and no disrespect to one of my past employees, person discs in factories. When I talk about fashion clothes and confidence and how pe people feel when they've when they when they've got a great outfit on, yeah. you can see that obviously with you being an author. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's just in it's it's that's the bit as I always wanted to do since I was a kid. You know, just write, tell stories, or draw. You know, create something that shared how I was feeling, and and I guess that's one of the things. You know, uh, when I was in the broadcasting world. You know, you're so far removed from the actual stuff that's going out through the speakers. You're setting director directives and 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 you're just trying to manage the business side of things, but you're not really creating anything. You're managing people, managing people, managing people doing the creation, and the creative people right at the end of the thing. And you know, these to win loads of awards. You can't take credit for that. You're like, oh yeah, we're award winners. You're like, I know what to do with that. You know, <laughs> I managed to sign off on the budget that got that promotion through. That did that. That's probably it. And you know that's the bit for me is, is I was always very creative, and I think the higher you go, people I'm sure they can reflect with this. The most fun you probably had in your work is when you were for me was when I was in radio was writing ads because I was just having fun. We were what can we do here? What can we make? What sound can we make? What voice can we do? Which actor could we get to do this for us? Versus you know we've got we need to you know strip off five percent in cost this 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 month or. We're not we're not we're not gonna hit quarter four. What can we do? What what can we implement to try and drive revenues in the last quarter? And you're like, it does just doesn't have the same sort of connection at all. Yeah, resonate. And I think I often have the conversation with friends from the police. You know, like some of them have gone up further ranks than than I did. But I I remember thinking the best job I had was at that sergeant level where you could support your team and just get involved. The higher bits was just detached, 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 detached. Not that I got that high because I deliberately chose to step off. But I was never passionate about the job. But even so, being involved, being closer to what it's all about, I think is where it's the real enjoyment can come from. You know, totally. I mean, I look at because of the the background of the books. You know, I watch conferences, and you know, when you're watching like someone high, super high up in the Met Police or whatever, and they're doing a press conference about. You know the way the business, the organisation, you know, isn't delivering the way it should, or there's been X, Y, Z, and then all all the recently publicised problems. I look at that person, I think, is that why you got into the police in the first place, or have you just been carried away by this wave of, you know, promotion and and almost like maybe like me and you know just like I've just got to get, I've got to do the next job as best I can. You do that really well. Well, you should do the next job, and you're like, oh, fuck you, are they? And you just end up at a place and you always stand at the edge of the cliff going, I've got no clue. I've no idea how I got here. This is 20 years later. What the bloody hell did I do to it? Yes, sir. You know, I walked into an office in Leeds going, can I write some ads for you? And then I'm sitting there going, 
I'm the group content director of the fucking Sony Awards <laughs> of like 200 people. I'm like, how did I go from there to here? And there'd be plenty of people screaming, listen to this now, going, we don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody obvious. <laughs> but it's right. I remember one inspector uh, telling me, because when I said, look, because I was highlight for accelerated promotion, all that, and I, and I kind of, I'd made a decision early on. It's not for me. It's not what I want. And he, and he kind of smiled and he said, you're right, you either stay on it or you get off. And it's a simple, obvious phrase, but it's true because it, you stay off or you deliberately decide to get off. Yeah, uh, stay on, sorry, or deliberately decide to get off. And, you know, there's points, I guess, in career where that can happen. You can make those choices. But if you're not aware or you're not necessarily tuned into yeah. what's really driving you, that, you know, you stay on. Don't yeah. You? Totally. And it's, the, and it's the, the all the trappings that go with it. Sometimes yeah. you get, you get they become like weights around you because you've got the car payment, you've got the house payment, you've got another car payment. You might have a teenage son who needs a car, you know, school trips, you know, universities. All of that suddenly becomes, you just can't get out, you know, and that's all you think you can't get out. I think that's the scary bit is it's like, well, where do you look to get out? So on that note then, if somebody's sort of sitting in a position where they're, they're on the treadmill or whatever, what advice would you give them? What thoughts would you share from your experiences about, you know, getting off or staying on? Yeah. <clears throat> are you happy? You know, you look yourself in the mirror in the morning. Are you doing it because you're enjoying it and you're happy? Are you doing it because you might be quite good at it? And, and well, hopefully you're quite good at it if you're at that level. Um, and you've just got locked into that space. And if you're locked into that space don't think you can't get out you but to get out you've probably got to find and i don't want to get into cliches and like you know metaphors but you've got to find the key thing that's going to get you out what is the thing that's going to drive you to step out of that safe slightly oppressive space at times and and get you through the bumpy bits because all three of us have stepped off but it hasn't been played saying i'm sure you know it never is and i mean clients every week entrepreneurs it was just like you know I, I feel like I should just go back to work and I'm like no 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 you failed your purpose you you know that is the thing that's really really resonates with me now all these years later is if you know if, if you can find your purpose in life if you are if that's corporate and you're doing really well and that's your purpose and I see people who it is they absolutely love it love everything about it then that's what you're meant to do that's your mission here you're here to do something and to help other people do really well but if your purpose you know, is not that, and it's something else. If you found it, I said this to a client yesterday, if you found it, your business will be successful. It might not be successful in its current guise, but we'll find a way to be successful because it's your purpose and it's the thing you're meant to do. And trust me, it's been up and down like a bloody yo-yo at times. But the one thing I always knew was I was doing something I'm meant to be doing. And, and I think over over the years, it's like, it's learning to trust the process and, and just let, take your fingers off a little bit and say, do you know what? It will come and you'll find a way, just something will pop up. It might not look like it. There's been moments where I'm just sat there going, shit, money is seriously running out now. We need to get something through the door. And, you know, I'm like, what happens next? A month later, I'll get a contract through. Boom. That's it. That's going to sort us out for the rest of the year. Happy days. Not by luck. You know, there's obviously work that's on in the background, but there's also that belief that I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, thankfully, that's not that's not the way it is anymore. But if you can find that key, find that purpose, that will be the thing that will help you get through those lean times. 
because they will be lean without a doubt. I think there's two words that always stick in my mind, and it's um, being resilient and being relentless. Mm. Well, there's mm. you have to be yeah. every day, every day on it, because <laughs> if you're going to make this decision, you know, and it is your passion, it's your purpose. You, you, you've got to be those two things. Yeah. As well. Such a good one, just to pick up on that. They're different as well. Because relentless is a, I mean, they, they're overlapped, but they are different. You can mm -hmm. be resilient, but you still got to push. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But do you know what? This has been brilliant. Enough. Thank you for coming. It's been just a great chat. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. I'm sure they have. It's been brilliant. And so much that, that, to share about it. And I guess what, what we want to do is kind of wrap it up with our usual question, which is, what what object or accessory or thing from your past brings you joy? And can you share that with us? I've got a couple of things I brought with me. Okay. And I'll, they'll make sense. They're just under the chair. Right. Like we've got wheels or props. Got... Right, so I've got a few things here. I didn't think this one through, really. The books are bigger than the underneath. <laughs> so the first thing, first object, is is this. Now this is my first ever storybook. Right? So, well, the first one that I've ever really properly kept. And this is a book I wrote in Mrs. Shigula's class. Um, it's, I think I was age seven. And it's basically all these different stories that I wrote. Oh, wow. And illustrated. And um, whenever I do talks about Ryan, I'll read one of the stories out of this. This gets more response than my current books, to be honest. <laughs> but um, this is when I really realised that I love to write and and as you say, create. So that's my that when I look at that, I lost it for many many years. It was when my dad passed actually. We, we were digging out the cellar, uh, clearing stuff out, and we found the box. And I was just like, I had it in my head. I was like, I'm sure there's a book somewhere with all this in. And this was it. I mean, I absolutely love it. That was J2R. The next one. <laughs> My first novel, uh, yeah, self-published. <laughs> because when I look at that, it's on my wall in my office. I've got all my all my covers in frames, and there's two reasons for that. One is to remember what order they're in, but another is to remind myself that I'm an author, that I've done that, you know. And I think there's almost I'm trying to think, there's nearly a million words in wow. on the wall now. Probably actually might be more than that. So um, I look at that, and this is this is my boy. This is this started all. He opened the door. So this is one I self-published. And um, it led me to Incubator, who then signed me, and we created the Phillips series off the back of it. The next one I have, which any author will tell you is probably the most precious thing, is your first bestseller. So this was Silence. Now, this became a bestseller three years after launch, which is unusual. Normally they launch, and you get it yeah. when they're out. But it, um, it climbed, and I wasn't at number one for very long with this. I think it was about 24 hours. Then Michael Conley released his new book, The Bastard. <laughs> So I just disappeared into number two for quite some time, but I was there for that day, and that was enough. So that's deadly silence. That's, yeah, deadly silence. that's deadly silence. Yeah. Yes. And my and my next one is my second and latest bestseller, Deadly Justice. Yes. And I think this one is as, as precious as this because it proved that it wasn't a fluke. Because the twenty four hours, I was like, ah, well, it was only twenty four hours. This was at the, chart, the top of the charts for quite a while, and I fended off some quite big hitters with this one, and it just. Um, it really made me smile to get that. And I remember waking up, my wife was away uh, with Vaughan, they were on holiday somewhere, and I checked my, for some reason I got to bed the night before and it was okay in the chart. And I woke up at five in the morning and I was like, don't check it, don't check it, you've been too keen, you've been too keen. I was like, fuck 
fucking checked it. <laughs> and I checked it and I was number one at five in the morning. I screenshot it like mad. I was taking everything I could to get on the screen, like sending it to anybody I could possibly think of. Number one, number one, number one. And um, and it was just, it was brilliant. Was so exciting. So those are those are things that they make me smile. And, and I have all the, the covers on the wall and I talk to them every day and I just say, that, you know, love you. Gratitude. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Because... I opened the, he opened the door and you know and they just allow me to do what yeah. what I do and I and you know I'm sure hopefully it's come across I absolutely love it oh, yeah that's yeah. yeah it's a it's a big difference to what I would have been doing so <laughs> yeah. yeah and I and I'm so grateful for that you know yeah. and it's awesome because when we asked this question um, in previous ones it's been from the past and the question raised was what do we have now and you kind of you, yeah, yeah exemplify exactly that that you're still you're keeping these things now as a as as symbols of gratitude as mm-hmm. as a purpose so and that's what it's about it's having these things that are symbolic yeah. of where you're at now as well as in the past you know yeah. so brilliant yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> yeah. i really agree yeah. i could say really enjoy yeah. yeah so can we do it again <laughs> yeah. yeah thanks very much well, and uh we look forward to seeing the next installment what was it what's the next one remind us of the next title it's, uh deadly inferno deadly inferno yeah uh, the current one it's only been out about a month is called deadly veil um but the new one i'm writing will hopefully be out in the new year uh deadly inferno and uh yeah it promises to be a bit of a bit of a burn in the house down Okay, great. And where, if people want to check you out, the book's out, where's the best place? Best place to go is Amazon UK or Amazon.com, whichever one uh, you're closest to. If you put in OMJ Ryan, um, I've got that many now. I will pop up under the search and uh, you can see the whole uh, the whole series there of, of 12 books. You can help yourself and see which one. But I would recommend start with Silence and work your way through it. The full, the full benefit of it all. Definitely. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Cheers. hope that you enjoyed the episodes and got something from that if you did we would love you to share our podcast and if you're not already subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or review that really helps spread the word we'd also like to thank our podcast producer Bernardo for doing the sensational job and thanks to the awesome Logan Nicholson of musicthemakers.com for the music for the podcast catch you in the next episode thanks guys <laughs>